Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Pastor Kenny. Thank you. Today was cold when I woke up this morning. And it's been pretty cold. Uh, but when I was driving here, man, did you guys see the local mountains? They're beautiful, huh? So those who love the snowboard, Wrightwood is probably wide open. And that's only like maybe an hour and 15 away. If you drive really fast, maybe 55 minutes. <laughs> but uh, man, those mountains are beautiful. Uh, I, both lo- I have a love-hate relationship with cold weather. Um, I love Southern California, right? I love the warmth. And so when it gets like this, I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm freezing. And my sister in Wisconsin, you know, emails me and says, you know, it's 18. It's 18 Fahrenheit here. I'm like, what is that, right? That's too cold. Anyway, um, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to celebrate communion this morning. Uh, It's already December, right? It is already December. And um, one of my daughters, uh, we usually get a lot of Christmas cards by now. And so I'm figuring a lot of you are behind, right? (laughs) See, that's my assumption. My daughter's assumption is, um, I don't think people are giving us Christmas cards anymore. I'm a little bit more egocentric, and I'm thinking, no, uh, they're behind. So if you're like me, it it has come upon us quickly. But today is the first day of Advent. Uh, We are starting a new series, The Unexpected Messiah, as Pastor Paul shared. And in this series, we're gonna look at the three hopes that God's people had for the promised Messiah. The hope of God's redemption or his deliverance, the hope of, of God's righteousness, and the hope of God's reign. And our hope is that um, as we look at these three expectations of the Messiah, uh, that it will cause us to reflect on our own hopes and expectations of Jesus. And it would prepare us and, and better ready us again in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're gonna look at the messianic hope for God's redemption, his deliverance of us. And we're gonna look at the people's expectation of Jesus and Jesus' response to them, okay? So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we come before you confident, not in ourselves, but in your great love for us. And in the complete truth, Lord, that, that you know us completely, nothing is hidden from your eyes, and yet you choose to love us. Your son chooses to come to give his life for us so that we might have life. Your love for us is enduring, it is forgiving, it is complete, and it is forever. And so, Lord, we gather this morning confident in your love and mercy and righteousness toward us. And Father, in this time, too, I just wanna pray, Lord, for those who in this season is a difficult one, because in this past year they have lost a loved one, or a loved one at this moment is very sick. 
We ask that you would draw near. That you, Emmanuel, God with us, would draw near. And you would carry each person, granting them the hope and truth that you are with us, and one day you will bring about a full redemption. So thank you. Quicken our hearts now, Lord. Quicken our hearts. In your name I pray, amen. You know, one of the most difficult challenges in marriage or in any significant relationship that you're in, one of the most difficult challenges is to honestly face the ex- your own expectations that you bring into it. The most, the greatest challenge, all right, in any marriage or significant relationship is facing the expectations you yourself bring in to that relationship. Um, When I first was married, I'm gonna share a light expectation, okay, because I don't wanna share like a heavy one and everyone's like, oh, dude, pray for that guy. I do need your prayers, but I'll share a light one. You know, when I got married, First of all, when you first get married, it's like, right, you're just happy to be married and your spouse is the sunshine of your life, okay? And uh, so I remember I I was working at LAUSD and my wife uh, ironed my shirt, right? And I'm like, whoa, she ironed my shirt. And um, I, I also had other expectations. Anyway, there came a point when um, that stopped happening, right? And I remember I ran out of underwear and uh, I told my wife, you know, I don't have any more underwear. And she's like, yes. And what happened is that I had to start doing my own laundry, right? And I was like, what? And to be honest with you, that was sort of like a big deal for me. I was young and stupid, right? (laughs) But I remember going to bed mad, thinking to myself, I've gotta do my own laundry, okay? I lived at home until I was married, okay? And everyone said, oh, that's why. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't know that that was such a big expectation of me until that happened, But there are much greater expectations we bring into marriage that when we realize they're not gonna be fulfilled, right? When we realize that our spouse is not the person or they're not filling this deep need within me, and that's when the bottom falls out of the box of our hopes, right? And when that happens, then you get totally disoriented. But when that happens, that is one of the best and greatest things God could ever do for your relationship. To have you stop expecting something from this person whom you have vowed to stay with for your entire life here on earth. To let go of things and demands that you put upon them to finally maybe begin to see whom God has made them to be and be able to receive who they are and enjoy the mercy and grace that God is doing in both of your lives, amen?
But until that point, it is so difficult. In the passage we're gonna read today, the disciples are faced with their expectations of Jesus and the bottom falls out of the box. And Jesus begins to speak to them and address their expectations and their whole understanding of Messiah and his deliverance of them begins to be reformed. And so we're gonna be reading out of Matthew chapter 16. And so if you could stand as I read the scriptures, I'm gonna be reading from Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. And now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus refers to, him in Matt, refers to himself as the Son of Man in Matthew, and so the disciples know that he is saying, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, right? The son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus then blesses Simon with a few words, and then in verse 20, this is what he does. Then he, Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Do not tell anyone. I am the Messiah. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You may be seated. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he had now been with his disciples for over a year, and he had spent time with them 24-7. The disciples are familiar with his teaching. They know his, uh, his character, his personality. They've seen him minister to the poor, to the diseased, to the rich, to the influential. And they've seen him do incredible miracles. They've seen him, they've heard him teach. Uh, they know him and they know him well. But up until this point in Jesus' ministry, he has not definitively told them that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's not said this yet. And so this account is very critical. 
You know, the disciples, they knew Jesus was special. In John chapter one, uh, 23, when Philip tells Nathaniel about Jesus, he says, hey, come and meet this guy. Uh, he says, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And so they had an assumption that maybe Jesus was this promised Messiah. And when Nathaniel finally meets him, he does say, he says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And so although they might have ideas of who Jesus is, Jesus has not definitively said, this is who I am, until now, right? Jesus first asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am, right? The people who don't know me, maybe some of the people who just met me this day in this town, who do they say that I am? And they say, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, some prophet, but then he turns to them who knows him very well, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter reveals what only God could reveal to him, that's what Jesus says, right? You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You are God. Jesus affirms this, and then, with a, through a, a twist of events or just situation, he strictly, it says, right? My, my uh, in ESV, it says that he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one this great news. Right? Now, here are the disciples. They're thinking and they're assuming, hey, this is probably the guy, but he hasn't said it. And so now, finally, Jesus affirms, yes, I am the Messiah. They're like, yes, I've got to tell someone. And Jesus sternly charges them, tell no one. Right? And I wonder, why does he sternly tell them, right? Why does he say it intensely? Don't tell anybody. And I think he does it because... Um, I don't think they would understand why they couldn't tell people that he was the Messiah. And so he had to be intense about it. Um, kids in this sanctuary, you could probably relate to this. When my kids were young, all right, and they're, and they're little, we would have discussions around the table, uh, just things about, it could have been embarrassing moments or just thoughts that we had. and. The first time it happens, you just talk about it, but then when you're out in public, I don't know if you've experienced this, one of your kids goes, hey dad, you remember when you blah, 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 you said that, and you're like, why are you talking about that? That is, this is not the place, you know, there's people here who maybe respect me, <laughs> right? <laughs> or it just isn't the time, and there's just no sense of why, why can't? We were just talking about it at the dinner table. Why can't I talk about that here now at church, right? Well, there's reasons. And even though you can give some reasons, as a little child, your kid would just be like, okay, I don't get it. And so what do you do? You get intense, right? And so what happens sometimes, well, this is when they're little, and actually, actually sometimes happens even now, today. <laughs> We're talking, I'll stop and I'll go, and I'll look at my child in the eyes. I'm looking at Daniel right now. Daniel, do not repeat this in public. 
and I get intense. I don't, you know, I don't get like, don't do that, right? But it, it's very serious. Do not repeat this. And I think this is what Jesus is doing. I don't think the disciples have any idea why not begin to tell the people that the Messiah has come. The promised Messiah who would bring redemption to Israel, who would deliver us, who would bring about prosperity and peace. Why not tell people about this? Jesus says no. And why does he say no? Why doesn't Jesus want people to know that he is the promised Messiah? Well, earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus feeds over 5,000 people, right? This happens in uh, Matthew chapter 14. And in John 6, which is a parallel account of this feeding of the 5,000, in John chapter 6, 13, this is what, how John describes the response of the people. And so let me read this. John, thir- John 6, 13. He says this. Starting with verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments, fragments from the five barley loaves. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, when, he had, when they had seen that Jesus had just fed over 5,000 people and had provided for them as much as they could eat, right? they said, this, in, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, redeemer and deliverer now, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus knew that the Messiah, the Redeemer, that the people were expecting was not the Messiah he came to be. He knew their expectations. And so this is why he told his disciples, do not tell anyone. Do not tell anyone. Because when expectations, and and man, you've got to understand how strong our expectations are, our deepest expectations for life and for love and for hope. When those expectations are not met, you either go into a depression or you go into deep fury. And Jesus knows this. He knows that they wanted a strong and powerful king who would provide for them and deliver them out of their current hardships. They wanted deliverance now. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, why did the people expect that type of Messiah? You know, was it because they somehow misunderstood the scriptures? Did they misunderstand the promised uh, deliverance that he would bring? 
And the answer to that is no. They did not misunderstand the scriptures. When you look at the prophets, especially the prophets, the scriptures describe a strong and powerful Messiah King who would deliver God's people from their enemies and usher in a time of prosperity and peace. It's there. And so they didn't misunderstand that. But they did miss the scriptures that described the Messiah as a humble servant who would suffer for them in order to deliver them from God's judgment and bring them healing and peace. But how did they miss those scriptures? How did they miss them? The way that they missed them is that their hopes and expectations of the Messiah only allowed them to see the scriptures that fit their image of their Messiah. Does that make sense? Their expectations of what a Messiah should be formed the scriptures that they saw that pointed to him. It's very similar to Samuel, the prophet Samuel. In 1 Samuel 16, God calls Samuel to anoint a new king. Saul had gone wayward. And so Samuel says, I have a new king I want you to anoint. Who's going to be my king? And so, and so he sends uh, Samuel to the home of Jesse, and he has seven sons. Okay? And uh, Samuel goes there in expectation to anoint the next king. And he sees Eliab, the oldest son, and he's tall. Right? It says he's tall of stature. He's probably pretty cut, right? And he looks like a king in Samuel's eyes because that's what Samuel expects a king to look like. And right when he sees him, he says, ah, the Lord's anointed. And he begins to, and he begins to maybe stand up and get ready, and the Lord speaks to him and says, no, that is not my next king. Because you're looking at the outward appearance, I look at the heart. But this expectation that uh, Samuel had of a king blinded him from seeing the next king that would be in David. For the people, their expectation that the Messiah would be mighty and victorious and that he would defeat his enemies and deliver Israel out of their difficulties, right? It's all in the scriptures and it's true, but those were the only things that they saw because that was the only picture they had of Messiah. But you know, it wasn't just the crowds who saw Jesus that way. It was also his very own disciples. It was also the very ones who knew him best they were still expecting him to be someone and a Messiah that he was not. In Matthew, again, I'll go back, 1621, he says, it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, not to set up a kingdom, but go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes 
and be killed and on the third day rise again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So not only did the crowds not understand who Jesus was, but even his very own disciples. Our expectations of God run deep. They run so, so very deep. And so I ask you this morning, right, what are your expectations of Jesus? What are you hoping from him? Peter is appalled at Jesus's, uh, when Jesus says who he is and what's going to happen to him. But Jesus gently rebukes him, corrects him, and then he begins to form and reshape Peter and the disciples' uh, vision of a Messiah. He begins to reshape their hopes and expectations of him. And we begin to see this begin to happen uh, through his, his, uh, his many conversations with them. But even at the very end, right, after he's been crucified, after he's revealed himself as the risen Lord, okay, to Mary and Martha, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, it says that two disciples are going to Emmaus, one's name is Clopas, and Jesus comes up to them and he starts to talk to them and they are sad, right? They're moping and he's like, what's wrong? Haven't you heard what's happened? And he begins to tell them and they begin to tell them what was happening and in verse 21, it said, Clopas says this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We were hoping that he was going to deliver us today. And so even after all the teaching, and even after the, uh, he, he's revealed himself to the women, they still don't believe. They still are fighting their expectations. But God in his grace, it says in that passage, that he begins to again teach them again. He goes back to the scriptures and he begins to teach them he doesn't go, knuckleheads, right? What are you thinking? Right? He doesn't do that. He again teaches us. And so it is with our Lord, with you and I. You know, there is gonna come a day when Jesus definitely comes back as the victorious messianic savior that we long for, that he is going to completely deliver you and I from all of our hardships, from the weaknesses of our body, from the sin that indwells us, from certain worries and fears that seem to continually plague us, he will deliver us one day completely from that. He will free us from enemies, from those who harm us. There will come a day when death no longer is at our doorstep or at the doorstep of someone we love, there will come a day when that happens. But now, Jesus' redemption does not take us out of this world, 
But as Pastor Paul said at the very beginning of the service, Jesus' redemption is that he comes into this world. Amen? He does not take us out and eradicate us, eradicate sin in our life. He doesn't take us out of selfishness, sorrow, and suffering, but Jesus' redemption brings him into our sin, into our selfishness, into our suffering. He comes to be with us. And in the presence of his undying love and in his beautiful truth and holiness, he begins to transform us. He takes our ugliness and our sin. He takes it and then he gives us forgiveness in life. He takes our hopelessness and maybe doesn't necessarily change the situation, but his spirit in us assures us that he is with us and he's gonna carry us through it. I know there's many in this room who have experienced that. He has not brought you out of your suffering, but he has come and he has filled you up, amen? Let me try that one more time, and those who have experienced that say amen. There's some in this room who have not been taken out of their suffering, but God Almighty, through his Son, has come to dwell within you, and he has encouraged you, and he has lifted you up, and you know he is with you. Amen? amen. Yes. And the redemption that he brings is so much greater than taking you out of a situation. He actually transforms the very suffering you're going through. Maybe you've been a victim of suffering that cannot be changed, but he takes that and he actually, I don't know how, but he changes you through it. That's what Jesus going to the cross and suffering is all about. He has crowned the king on the cross. He enters into the very suffering we have and he redeems us to be back in the relationship with him. Amen? That is what communion is all about. I just want to read um, a, a quote. I have a, a pastor that I really enjoy reading his articles and he describes the redemption we have in Jesus like this. He says this. The final blood is shed, the debt is paid, forgiveness is purchased, God's wrath is removed, adoption is secured, we're in his family, we're his, the down payment it is in the bank, the first fruits of the harvest are in the barn, the future is sure, the joy is great, but the end is not yet. Death still snatches away Disease still makes us miserable. Calamity still strikes. Satan still prowls. The flesh still wars against the spirit. Sin still indwells. And yet we still groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We still wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ that is sure. We still wait for final deliverance from the wrath to come, and we still wait for the hope of righteousness. The longing continues, but the hope is sure. 
This is the redemption that Jesus the Messiah has come to bring to us today. And at this communion table, we celebrate that redemption. And we celebrate these two facets of it, his current redemption and the future redemption. For all of us who trust and have given our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, his broken body for you and his blood shed for us brings us peace with God, forgiveness and his presence with us to the very end. As we come before this table, that is what we celebrate. We receive it, not because we earned it, but because he gives it to us by his grace. And so we come and we remember and we celebrate that. And yet at the same time, this table is not just a remembering of the past, but it's looking toward to the future, to a redemption that is still yet to happen, a feast in which we feast with God when death is completely conquered, sorrow is completely eradicated, the sin within us is gone, and we are truly, truly free. And so may this Christmas time, as we await a savior, may we look at uh, just what we are expecting, what we look to Jesus for, and may any errors in our thinking, any longings that he would uh, be something that he is not, be set aside so that we might be, re- be able to receive all that he has given to us today. Amen? Amen. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now at this communion table, Lord, we ask that you would meet us. You ask us to take the bread and the cup and to remember and to worship, Lord, your great love for us. Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would minister again your forgiveness, your peace, and your grace. Lord, is there anything that we are expecting of you that you want us to die to? Anything that only has to do with our desires and has nothing to do with you? Anything in us, Lord, that keeps us from receiving the peace and the hope that you desire to give through your Son? Lord, reveal those things to us this morning. We love you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.